Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? Yeah, the atmosphere was brilliant, wasn't it? It was, it was great when Thierry Henry made an appearance on the big screen and it got the reaction, didn't it, that it needed. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now you're welcome along Sunday Papers, Joe Malloy with you this afternoon so I'll run you through the headlines first of all starting with the Sunday Times, it's great to see actually, picture of Christian Eriksen celebrating his goal at Stamford Bridge yesterday comeback king and he very much is that two goals in his many games for Denmark now Eriksen fires home as Brentford beat Chelsea for the first time since 1939 so that's their uh, lead picture in the Sunday Times, beside that Cork GAA players uh, or sorry, Cork GA backed the players on Munster semi-venue. So Cork GA in effect have uh, backed the Cork footballers and their refusal to play their Munster semi-final against Kerry anywhere other than Porky Rin. So there is a standoff here between Cork GA and the Munster Council. In effect, Ed Sheeran's playing at Porky Cueve, so that's not available. Cork want to move the game to Porky Rin, which has a reduced capacity at the moment of 11,000, which is deemed not good enough. And so the game is, there's talks of moving the game to Killarney. But in a statement on Thursday night, the Cork players insisted they would only play the match as scheduled May 7th, Porky Rin. They say the decision to take the game to Killarney is driven by the financial benefits resulting from a larger crowd. We feel this reasoning sets a bad precedent. Now, uh, if an agreement, writes Mick Foley on the front page here, if an agreement cannot be reached, then Cork will concede a walkover to Kerry for the first time in championship history and move directly into the All-Ireland qualifiers so that is definitely a brewing story at the moment uh, The Sun then has Matt Doherty these comments are across the papers actually bus stopped it's Matt Doherty in advance of uh, today's game against Newcastle for Spurs he's uh, reflecting on his low point really in a Spurs jersey and it came last year in a away trip to Aston Villa when he wasn't even a substitute and this is at a time when given there was Covid you could have quite large squads 21 players plus on the bench and uh, he was told by Ledley King getting off the bus that you're not on the bench today and so you actually have to stay on the bus you're not allowed in the dressing room because of Covid protocol so uh, he sat on the bus and had a long thing about things genuinely I was so close to just getting in the car and just going to the Irish International there was an Irish International get together that evening in Manchester I'm glad I didn't it wouldn't have been professional but that's dirty and that was uh, the final weeks of the Mourinho era when things weren't going well for him from page of the Sunday Independent there was the league hurling final last night Bennett leads rebel rout the front page there that's Stephen Bennett who scored 2-11 for Waterford against Cork last night to win the Allianz hurling league title uh, Waterford lay down marker with awesome display is the headline uh, story we might come back to in just a moment big clubs in line for European bailout uh, Sam Wallace the Champions League uh, format for 2024 being finalised qualification included there'll be 100 extra games per season by the way in the Champions League next year or sorry in 2024 uh, Mail on Sunday obviously wins yesterday for Liverpool and Man City reflected in the pictures we have a picture of Diogo Jota and uh, celebrations as well with De Bruyne and Sterling Man City 2-0 winners at Turf Moor Liverpool 2-0 winners at home to Watford Clock Warren City we won't give you an inch Pep admits next weekend is title decider and then Philip Lanigan on this GEA versus GPA situation. Uh, GEA not for budging and rare with GPA is the headline there. If you're a Liverpool fan and a Mo Salah fan, good news. This is the star. Ace is set to sign on for Reds for life. So it would seem, according to John Richardson, and this story is in the mirror as well. John Richardson, it's the same story on both uh, back pages, mirror and 
star. Uh, Mo Salah close to agreeing a contract which will keep him at Liverpool until the end of his career. So initially he had rejected a £400,000 a week offer but now seems he's going to take that offer with an extra 12 years included. So it's going to be a four-year contract, four hundred grand a week and he's happy enough to go with that. So there are the leads and the star and the mirror. Although John Aldridge on the back page of the Sunday World, Salah's got to cop on. This is probably, he hadn't quite realised Salah was on the brink of signing. He said uh, his alarming form uh, was notable yesterday. Uh, Salah's had his worst game in a Liverpool jersey at Anfield and it's a massive concern heading into the biggest month of the season. He feels that uh, it's got to be linked to the contract situation. Isn't that very odd take, um, Joe, in that it's not that long that there was a lot of talk of, of um, England players suffering a Euros hangover and that this lingered for months. And Salah lost an African Cup Nations in January when he was captain. And something he said, you know, was his dream to win as captain. And Egypt hadn't won in a while. He'd never won one. And then uh, he missed out on that. Then this international break missed out on the World Cup. And his last World Cup, we know what happened, was a huge deal. He got injured in the Champions League final when Sergio Ramos did a job on him. Didn't Wasn't able to start the first game. Wasn't fit when he did play. And now he's missed out again. And he's come back from a long trip and he doesn't play particularly well. But it's supposedly about his contract. Like, he is human. Like, surely you take a few days to process. Like, this was a huge deal getting to World Cup. But you're suddenly supposed to be at your best. I just think that, that kind of judgmental stuff is just mad. Yeah, completely agree. It says, uh, well, I don't have the exact quotes from Aldridge, but uh, Aldo telling the Sunday World that the Egyptians' contract standoff is now affecting his performances. I mean... He's had a contract standoff for the whole season and beyond, mm. really, hasn't he? So I, I presume it is the long journey, the heartbreak and missing it in the World Cup, missing the penalty. Yeah, yeah. That would make and anyone like He looked flat. frustrated, uh, he yeah. knew himself. And then, especially when uh, they got a penalty and Fabinho scored it. So there was a goal for him. And, uh, you know, he would have been thinking, oh, you know, that's what I would have needed going into a week with the game against City, with the Champions League game. And also, he, he really wants to win the Golden Boots. He wants to win the Ballon d'Or. Like, so every goal matters to him, so... It he'll, shows, he'll be okay. It shows uh, okay. really we're just all guessing on the outside as yeah. to why something's not playing well. Well, as we're guessing, and Amer- uh, I don't know if you come across that uh, interview by Emmerich Laporte uh, of Manchester City during the week. I think it was with Sid Lowe and The Guardian, but he, he, made, he had a great line. He said, a player, people don't realise that players lie in interviews <laughs> all the time. And of course they do, because they can't tell the truth. You know, if you tell the truth about your contract situation or how you feel about a manager or how a team is doing, especially this, uh, you know, where we are now with the, the pylons you get in social media, etc., you'd be in big trouble. You know, your fans are your back. Like, you look at Harry Maguire, what he used to deal with. So if you were actually to say what you think, like, and we all are guilty of taking, uh, putting too much credence in what players say. So we'd have something like, say, Josh Cullen back Stephen Kenny to the hill. Like, what else is he going to say? He might think Stephen Kenny is great, but he's not going to say otherwise anyway. But mm. that's just the game. And Laporte was, I like that he was honest enough to say, it is a game. We lie all the time. You know, that's the way we, we operate. Yes, it certainly is. Don't believe anything you read in the papers then. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer at the Irish Daily Star. You're very welcome. And Tommy Martin of Virgin Media Television. Hey, Tommy. Hi, Joe. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Tom. Just on the front page of the Sunday Independent, I referenced this story. Big clubs in line for European bailout. So the format of the Champions League from 2024 is taking shape. One of the interesting aspects is this safety net, which will be offered to bigger clubs. And they're in, in effect, I mean, they're trying to do what the European Super League tried to do, which is to guarantee 
places for all the big teams. So Sam Wallace here on the front page of the Sunday Independent. The FA Cup winners could qualify for the Champions League, but only if they're one of the top Premier League clubs. So in effect, Champions League places will be awarded to the two non-qualified clubs ranked highest on the UEFA coefficient. In effect, that means if they have a long and rich history and they are beloved by UEFA. So he said, uh, for instance, this year, you take the FA Cup semi-finals as they stand. Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Crystal Palace. Imagine for a second Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City are outside the qualification places. Uh, if they were to win the FA Cup, they would go through. However, if Crystal Palace were to heroically win the FA Cup, then that wouldn't be good enough to get them into the Champions League. So you can work that out for yourselves. The uh, safety net approach to giving big clubs with historic success a second chance to qualify has caused outrage. West Ham Vice Chairman Karen Brady has said the change of heart over coefficient places by UEFA President Alexander Sefron was Putin-esque. <laughs> Now, I'm all for having a go at FIFA, but can we not equate <coughs> uh, war crimes to the muddying of the UEFA coefficient? Putin has moved beyond that point now. Uh, she said the UEFA president was not into a rich boys club who don't like the idea of fair competition at home, leaving them without a ticket to further big books abroad. Uh, that part is very true. So from 2024, Tommy, the Champions League will switch from a 32-team, eight-group system to a, <coughs> a 36-team single league table in its first round. This will add 100 more games per season to the competition. Just what the Champions League needs, I hear you say. <laughs> Another 100 hey. games as the warm-up act. Hey, it's good for business, Joe. What can I say? <laughs> You'll be on Virgin um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'll have a, a sleeping bag under the desk. Um, yeah. Get Brian, Brian Kerr to check his diary for uh, 2024. Um, yeah, just the, the, the Putin-esque, it's, uh, it used to be, you know, the worst thing you could call someone was, you know, uh, likening them to Hitler and the Nazis, and then it became Trump-like behavior, and now it's obviously Putin-esque, is uh, the go-to uh, insult, uh, insult of last resort, uh, you might say. Um, this has obviously been uh, rumbling for quite some time. These proposals were, the 3016 um, uh, format was uh, aired last year, just before uh, the Super League um, debacle happened. And if you remember, I think Seferin, uh, Alexander Seferin, was waiting for Agnelli, the uh, Juventus uh, president, to come back and say, you OK with this? We ready to go with this? And it was radio silence uh, over, you know, this is this is the guy who's godfather to his, uh, his daughter. It was radio silence over a long weekend. And then all of a sudden, the Super League thing came out, you know, in, if you remember the intrigue there. So this 3016 thing, um, team format has been um, mooted for quite some time and is obviously, look, as we know, it's uh, intended to head off the, the Super League stuff, which has been going for 30 years ever since you know Berlusconi and the boys decided that the big teams shouldn't be meeting in the first round of the European Cup and getting knocked out. So it's just the latest iteration of that. Make it bigger, more games, squeeze the domestic competitions more and protect the um, uh, protect the, 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 the bigger clubs from both the horrible fate of actually getting knocked out. Um, so the two-team uh, safety net thing is the, is the one that's really abhorrent because it's, um, it's directly sort of, uh, you know, links back to what was, what was most uh, egregious about the Super League for most people, which was the lack of competitive... Um, uh, integrity where you know uh, the the super league was was ring fenced for uh, a certain number of teams this is a kind of a nod to that which is obviously why the likes of Karen Brady of West Ham and you know the um the sort of uh hypothetical crystal palace example 
um, rings rings so uh, so negatively to to our ears that you would think that the whole integrity of sporting competition could be just dashed off for the sake of keeping uh, a, an entitled, moneyed, um, spoiled group of clubs who who really what they sh- what they should be doing, what the right thing to do would be to address. Um, the distribution of revenues and look at controlling uh, costs and uh, agent fees and sa- player salaries, but instead they're going for this ever increasing uh, expansion growth. We need to get bigger, bigger, and it's you know it's it's like a metaphor for human societies. Like we, we you know what, why don't we look at actually controlling what we consume rather than looking to consume more? So it's it's all it's all part of that same um, sort of uh, argument. But the kicker to me, though, of the of the piece, and we do tend to get our knickers in a knot about these sort of stories, is the last sentence there, where it says, "Applying the new rules being proposed to last season, Shakhtar Donetsk and Leon would have qualified." Hmm. So it's 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 not you know when you see it like that, it's like it's not quite like it's clearly wrong if Shakhtar Donetsk and Leo haven't qualified by their own merit, but you know mm-hmm. a, a sort of. Uh, a bumper Champions League or a, a bloated Champions League with Shakhtar Donetsk and Leon, it's a bit like, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, well, okay, what's the big deal? It kind of looks a bit Champions League-y anyway. Like, but mm. yeah, so look, the, the 36-team format with the single league table, which is, I believe is known as the Swiss format, which is a chess, uh, a, a reference to ch- a chess competition um, thing, yeah, look, I mean, a hundred more. Ch- I I love the Champions League. Don't get me wrong, a hundred more games per season. Um, look, I'm not gonna, uh, <laughs> not gonna do myself out of a job. But I don't know. Do we need that? Mm. Why can't we ever just be satisfied, Kieran? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a philosophical question that would take me all day to even start to address. But um, I I wonder is this, is part of the move towards five subs related to this as well. That this that the big clubs have pointed out that they will be playing these huge amount of extra games, and that you will see them rotate in the squad far more. And it's going to downgrade the domestic leagues. Like, but definitely the first half of the season, you will see they have to focus on the Champions League. With uh, that, the big players will be will play Champions League ahead of Premier League. I would say potentially, unless it unless it turns club, out yeah, that it's near club. impossible to not make the knockout stages. Yeah. Unless we spend four or five months of Tommy Martin there working his backside off to just eliminate six teams. Yeah, and mm. that, that could happen and we know fairly quickly. You know, Which I would think will start, happen, by the yeah, way. They'll yeah. want all the big boys in the knockout stages. So it actually might do value Champions League games. You might have increasingly for uh, trips to Ludogorets, well, we'll send the B team. Yeah, and with international breaks as well, how does it? how is that all going to fit in in the first I, Well, I, I, I think the, it's hard to see the bigger teams competing in a league cup, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, in 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 this model. I mean, there's going to be. I don't have the this piece doesn't have the exact details of how many weeks and and all that sort of. But I think maybe ten match weeks in in the first half of the season. So, you know, it's it's um it. I, I think what you'll what what will happen is the bigger teams or are they put out a B team? You know, put out put out the kids in the league cup. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's, that's in the fr- that sort of thing. You know. Front page of the Sunday Independent. Putin esque behaviour on behalf of uh, UEFA, according to Karen Brady. So a couple of pieces we picked out. I do accept and sense a certain fatigue amongst the listeners when it comes to Qatar. So we don't have to spend overly long on this. But it's also important just to reference what's going on here because it is one of the great scandals. It is truly one of the great scandals in sport and in football. And Ollie Holt goes after it 
on page 73 of the mail, as he has done many times. And he quotes Gianni Infantino on Friday at the World Cup draw, who said, we will see the best World Cup ever in Qatar. And Oli Holt says, usually you'd let something like that slide. But obviously in this instance, that is hard to do. He says, this is a tainted tournament. This isn't going to be the West Western World Cup ever. He calls it a £200 billion heist. And now it's upon us. The full absurdity of what we've been complicit in is actually getting real. We're having a World Cup in a country that's smaller than London because we didn't have the will to say no when it was stolen from the rest of the football world by the crooks and charlatans and hoodlums of FIFA 12 years ago. He said somehow Friday was the final frontier. No going back now. All hope of Qatar being stripped of the tournament gone. And he remembers of the 22 FIFA executives who voted in 2010 for Qatar to host the tournament, at least 16 have either been banned, accused or indicted for criminal corruption. And he mentions as well that the stadiums the players will play in were built in the blood of migrant workers, more than 6,500 workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it won the rights to host the World Cup 12 years ago. And many of those are thought to have been working on World Cup projects. He does note that the system that built Qatar's uh, football palaces was a modern version of slave labour, unpaid wages or wages withheld for months have been reported. Others uh, refer to the conditions as indentured servitude. It's called the kafala system in the Gulf. And 18 months ago, new labour laws in Qatar brought it to an end there, in theory at least. He said there are still reports that the reforms are not so much working in practice. And he goes on to say that last week, 16 different global anti-discrimination groups released a collective statement expressing their concerns about the tournament. For instance, one said, we have heard no specifics on guarantees that LGBTQ plus uh, people, fans or residents will not be arrested for their existence. And already there's wrangling about what would happen were anybody to wave a rainbow flag at matches or outside stadiums. One official suggested the flags would have to be taken from them for their own protection. Which wasn't meant, uh, which wasn't, uh, which was meant to be reassuring, rather, says Ollie Holt, uh, but wasn't. And uh, he finishes by making the point that as the players jog out, they might as well be playing in the graveyards of those migrant workers. Quite how anyone can still claim it will be the best World Cup ever in these circumstances, beggars belief. So that's a summary of Ollie Holt. It's a great piece, and yet, Karen, in many ways, it's a reheated piece of the last six, seven years, and. Yeah, yeah, and that's a pro. That's an issue for journalists covering this story. As you mentioned, there is a certain amount of fatigue because since Qatar was awarded the World Cup and even before when it was bidding for it, a lot of these issues have been highlighted, and it was made pretty clear across the media that there's no way Qatar should get a World Cup, but it has got a World Cup. You know, and you go through the numbers there of those who voted. Uh, you know, that 16 of the 22 that have been indicted or involved in various cases, uh, investi- investigative cases involving the FBI, you know, the deaths of workers on the on the sites, um, the conditions of workers on the sites. Like, there's no way this should happen. Like, it's a, a country that is smaller than Limerick. And imagine how ludicrous it would be Limerick hosting a World Cup. Like you could say J.P. McManus, John Magner, Dennis O'Brien, a few others, put the money together for Limerick to host the World Cup. We would still be laughing at it. And Limerick is more of a soccer tradition than Qatar has. And Limerick has, has some uh, 
is a, I think it's got a bit of a better record of human rights than Qatar has. You know, it's just... Uh, and there's a couple of other pieces, like uh, Sam Wallace would be in The Telegraph, it's in the Sunday Indo as well, looks at David Beckham. Mm. Well, David Beckham's an ambassador and basically seems to be ambassador because of his standing in the game. He looks good in a suit. He knows how to fold a pocket square. He smiles when you want him to smile. But he's been very quiet. And, you know, Sam Wallace points out that, you know, as a player and later campaigning for England's doomed 2018 World Cup bid, he was unusually willing to take questions on any subject. There was never any evasion. It seems the Qatar deal wants what it seems what the Qatar deal wants of him is more of that golden ball social media soft power and less of the awkward back and forth of more traditional exchanges. And on the same spread, uh, there's a piece of Jonathan Wilson that was originally uh, that's in the Observer as well. And he points out how striking uh, it's been striking, how how aggressive some of the people in Qatar involved in this have been over the past couple of days with the Secretary General of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy, Hassan Al-Tawadi, telling the president of the Norwegian Football Federation, Lisa Klavnes, to educate herself after she suggested that the migrant workers injured the families of those that died must be cared for. And Jonathan Wilson makes a very good point that process of education might be easier if journalists such as the Norwegian film crew arrested last November weren't subject to intimidation when they tried to report on such issues. Now, we're going to see a lot more of this in the run up to Qatar and once the tournament starts. And it's a difficult one for journalists in that uh, they will get criticised for going there. Mm. Like people say, how can you, you know, write about it as a football tournament and say it shouldn't take place there and then still go? But you still have to do your job. But if you go there as part of your job, you have to write about the reality of Qatar and why this decision is wrong. And it's probably the worst decision since the Berlin Olympics in terms of uh, uh, where a major tournament should go. Mm. Like it's a disaster for the sport. Yeah, it's a disgrace. Beckham, by the way, a 15-year deal, £150 million is the uh, point. And he was in last week before all the journalists arrived for the World Cup draw and then got out. And his Instagram feed was awash with uh, various pictures and images of uh, Qatar at its finest. And that seems to be the deal there with David Beckham. So Sam Wallace writing about that in The Telegraph. Uh, Tommy, on the broader situation, I heard Gary Neville speaking on his podcast yesterday, I think, and he made an interesting point. He said, really, you know, on the December point, which has been ridiculed generally, he said, I mean, if, if football is serious about going all around the world and going to Middle Eastern states, then there really there's probably going to be a World Cup in a December every 20 odd years, just in the interest mm. of moving this thing around the world. And I thought that was a fair observation and a fair point. And if we do that, if you're going to certain countries where... Uh, their beliefs are going to chafe quite dramatically with ours, then there is always going to be that tension there and states move at different paces and hold uh, different beliefs. beliefs. And that, that is that is uh, problematic and that is that is tricky first up and that's not going to go away anytime soon. But the real uh, disgrace here, the non-negotiable, is that 6,500 workers have died and thousands of others have been treated so appallingly, like truly appallingly, under FIFA's watch. That is the part that is utterly unacceptable here. Yeah, like the the thing about the November, December World Cup, I find that by some distance the 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 most forgivable thing about the Qatar thing. As you say, you know, it's a case of get over it. Adjust the season and the idea of having a, a summer World Cup is inherently based on, you know, European power power structures that we're so used to and 
probably you know I, I mean in, in in the mountain of guff that Gianni Infantino spoke the other day the fact that it is the first World Cup in a Muslim country and in the Arab world is something that you kind of say okay get get that that's that's probably that is probably you know something that that re represents a, a milestone um but uh, you know look as you say the all these pieces and you know you touched on it there uh, Kieran you do end up amounting to here let let us list again once again all the reasons all the absolutely horrendous reasons why this world cup from from the corruption at the get go to the deaths of the migrant workers to the situation for lgbtq plus to women's rights treatment of dissidents whistleblowers within the qatari system uh, and the media group the uh, media crews um, who, are, who are arrested when trying to report you end up listing you know all those those sort of things over and over again but you kind of have to because you know the sam wallace piece about beckham and the the absolute you know the the the, the ludicrous i mean that's that line that you know uh oliver holt opens his piece with gianni infantino saying we will see the best world cup ever in qatar you know that's replaced remember how pele used to you know uh, i reckon i reckon you know scotland could w could win this world cup I, you know he used to like pre predict every team was going to win the world cup that sort of you know replaced that as the standard copy and paste fifa line for uh, for every world cup now and like not to even kind of go have any any sort of um you know self awareness or or even a modicum of shame about about what they've done probably one of the best pieces about this you know just to get away from the sort of listing all the terrible reasons um you know to to try and counter the infantinos and the beckham uh, pr guff machine is was barney roney in the guardian yesterday i think it was and it pointed to the, also the the point that Jonathan Wilson makes, you know, it, it nodded to that that there's been a shift in tone from the Qataris this week, and it has been a less conciliatory tone. Whereas until now, it's been sort of look at all the reforms we're doing. This is going to be great. We're we're doing everything. We're consulting. We're, we're you know we're making life life is a lot better now. This week it's been a case of like tough shit. World Cups here. Deal with it. You know, the president of the Norwegian FA was basically told to you know educate yourself if i'm right i think i'm right in saying that that's like mma cryptocurrency and now the qatar world cup that that used the phrase educate yourself whenever uh, the face of uh, of critics but barney Rone's piece was sort of a, a, an over overarching look at qatar basically saying tough you know tough guys this is happening and it's happening because we have the world you know by the you know by the balls because of get natural gas just as russia had the world in the in the same way because of uh, f fossil fuel um, power and influence, and it's almost like you know what we're seeing in the world now and in our in our in our homes and in our energy bills and in, with the situation in Russia and how it's all tangled in. Sport is so entangled with that uh, that this Qatar, Qatar just sitting back there with their arms folded, going tough. You're here because we have this power, and all all this all your whining about human rights and. Uh, migrant workers so what you're here now mm. and it's a really kind of chilling kind of moment you know in sport and in in, in um, politics as well mm. Eamon Sweeney back page of the Sunday Independent Kieran I know this caught your eye real battle starts now for Kenny is the headline obviously the week that was Ireland had uh, their uh, friendlies against Belgium and Lithuania so he says uh, Stephen Kenny's not been a success as Ireland manager but he hasn't been a failure either a year and a half into his reign the cases for and against Kenny remain 
unproven. And he makes a good point, I think. It feels like Kenny's been in charge for much longer than he actually has. That's because he is the marriage equality referendum of managers, inspiring arguments whose intensity is only partly related to the issue at hand. In the eyes of both his fiercest detractors and his most loyal supporters, uh, Stephen Kenny stands for something greater than himself. As W.H. Auden said about Sigmund Freud, the former Dundalk manager is no more a person now, but a whole climate of opinion which is a hell of an opening. So uh, he notes that these days it's Kenny's supporters who are the ones in full cry as opposed to early mm. on in the tenure. They are no more balanced, he says, though, than their opposite numbers were earlier on when things weren't going well. Their belief is that the new manager must be defended at every opportunity or the FAI could sack him and no Irish team will ever again be allowed to play the ball out from the back. Which is a point, absolutely a point, like when we're assessing Stephen Kenny going forward, we can't just say, well, if... Stephen Kenny is not the right man or if it's not going well then we will automatically revert to terrible football like the next manager should be progressive as well and hopefully Stephen Kenny has started Ireland on that road Kenny's uh, last 10 games have produced 4 wins 5 draws and 1 loss Uh, he says strikingly similar to Mick McCarthy's uh, unsatisfying last spell but 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 we'd have to say the atmosphere around these 10 games is completely different yeah that makes a difference because there was one um you know, there's something you notice uh, watching the Ireland team over the years. A lot of a lot under a lot of different managers. Like there were times when it was going well, a lot of times when it wasn't going well. But often you f- you could see you could nearly see in players' faces that they felt under pressure, particularly at home. You know, if they, and if they made a mistake, uh, um, you know there would be a groan from the crowd, often a collective groan, and that was piling more pressure on. But now, if a player makes a mistake, it seems that you know they've been g'd up by the crowd more that the crowd are willing them to do well you know that there's definitely more of a goodwill factor uh across the board you know i do i do agree with Eamon you know that uh the jury's very much out and that it's too polarized like it's it's quite ridiculous in the way the way people are entrenched in their views like i saw quite a bit of criticism of brian Kerr, and i don't think anything brian like tommy would know sitting in the studio with him i don't think brian has said anything particularly outlandish He's more or less pointed out the teams Ireland have beaten under Kenny are teams you would always expect to beat, you know. And there's been a few decent moments. There's been a few that aren't like if only a Troy Parrott goal was sensational. It was great to see. It's one of the great Ireland goals. But other than that, there was an awful game. Like it's been talked about far too much and written about far too much. Ultimately, does it matter? Like it's nature abhors a vacuum, and so do the sports media. And like, how many hours this week have off the ball talked about Ireland v Lithuania? How many how many pages have been filled in newspapers? With that? And ultimately, it doesn't matter. You know, the Belgium thing. You could say the game mattered a bit more because of Belgium stature in in it. But as Eamon points out, like. Uh, ultimately it comes down because of the system that's there it comes down the Nations League will likely give you a playoff to go to the Euros so many teams qualify for the Euros anyway that's where he'll be judged more than likely get the Euros he'll be judged as a success but you do look at Canada going to the World Cup Ecuador going to the World Cup North, look at North Macedonia beating Italy you're playing a lot of countries have you know gone down the road of things that Ireland are talking about doing or doing or are doing now and they've been doing it for quite a while. You're always playing catch up. And just because, you know, Kenny's doing the right thing and there's a lot of right things been, been done at other levels with coaches like Tom Mohan and uh, Jim Crawford. But, but um, no, that's, you know, there's dozens of countries doing that, yeah. you know. So uh, I, I'd be very much on the fence with Stephen Kenny. I, li- I like the guy and I hope he does well, but 
I wouldn't buy into any messiah complex that some people have with him that he's the answer and he is the man uh, Eamon Sweeney goes on to just talk about some of the players for instance he says Ireland's biggest bonus has been the goal scoring form of Callum Robinson and Chidozi Ogbene after years of worrying about the lack of a striking threat we now possess a duo who scored nine goals in their last six games in a way that does worry me that feels like unrepeatable form on both fronts and I sincerely hope I'm wrong but that doesn't seem likely yeah, well, to Well when continue. you look at Robertson has struggled at club level for a long time and uh, O'Benny is playing League One in a very different role I know that you know he's, he's not he's not a, an attacking he's a wing back rather than an attacking player so Ogbeni will likely get a, a move up the ranks like probably to a championship a reasonable championship club so it'll be interesting to see how he does consistently there like there have been a lot of Irish players over the years who've been streaky who've had had a run of five or six games and they look the answer like uh, David Connolly was once compared to Gerd Muller after scoring a hat-trick against Le- Liechtenstein you know it didn't work out for him I like David Connolly and I know he d- contributed to your show but he, he wasn't Gerd Muller so you know we can get we can get carried away when players hit a streak of form. He goes on to say John Egan, Shane Duffy have excelled at centre back, and certainly like Kenny's done remarkably well on on both fronts there. And you would say Ogbené was given a chance when he mightn't have been under previous managers of the midfield situation. Josh Cullen, all the praise uh, largely stems from his relative efficiency compared to those around him. I think that's harsh in Cullen. I think he's better than just efficient. He's efficient in a very impressive way. Mm. Uh, Connor Howard and Jeff Hendrick, Jason Malumbi have failed to convince. Again, I would disagree on that one. We all have our quibbles. I think Jeff Hendrick has now Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely one that uh, Kenny has improved. Massively, massively. Yeah. And he makes the point on Troy Parrott then. So obviously outstanding goal. Since then, the young striker, uh, since the move from uh, under Mourinho, since then, the young strikers played 70 games for Millwall with MK Dons and scored eight goals. The future of Tuesday's match winner is far from certain. Yeah, uh, but he is 20. You know, true. Given that, you know, he is 20 years old. I know I think he does have a lot to prove because uh, so, so many prodigies here um, never fulfill their, their potential. Like it's often the guys that uh, weren't as mapped, you know, that have ended up having really decent Ireland careers that the guys that were most hyped in their late teens early 20s never kicked on yeah. no there's been a few exceptions like Robbie Keane and Damien Duff for example but but uh, I hope I hope it works for Parrot um, you know that, that goal might do a lot of good for him you know I hope so Tommy uh, Stephen Kenny's been afforded a huge amount of latitude amongst the Irish uh, footballing public because they understand he's bringing in lots of young players and he's trying to reinvigorate the style of football and therefore people have been very forgiving. I would say Brian Kerr has taken a slightly more pragmatic view of the whole thing and been uh, less forgiving. What's been your view at the centre of all that? Um, yeah, I think he's, he, he. I think Amos Sweeney's piece is really uh, acutely observed because there is a lot more than just the nuts and bolts of the performances that goes into the, you know, the pro, uh, the pro and, and anti Kenny uh, camps. Like, and, and part a big part of that is there is a climate in Irish football that is, you know, partially the fallout from the Delaney era disaster, partially to do with, you know, the fall off in um, in in our traditional. Uh, talent production system which was like ship them off to England and l- let them develop them and obviously uh, Brexit playing into all that and you know a kind of a there is a kind of a nativist sort of um, maybe it's you know I, I mean people are perceiving a sort of up, slight uptick in interest in the League of Ireland as well and there is a kind of a nativist sort of um, 
will to that Irish football, you know, that better, you know, that, that something can be done here. And I kind of wonder, you know, kind of fear a lot of it is, is wishful thinking because the sheer lack of investment. And we might go on to talk about Mick Dawson and Leinster Rugby in a moment. But, you know, you think of the investment that they have, the sheer lack of investment in Irish football, you know, that I wonder is a lot of, are a lot of the aspirations kind of, you know, wishful thinking. When you look, we talk about when, when Brian, you know, Brian Kerr's analysis of it, you know, it obviously comes from somebody who's, who's done the job before and knows how bloody hard international football is. And I always think, like I think I've said it before on here, you know, like you always say, like, you know, you, you go in, you have a great idea, but the other crowd, they have a plan as well. Mm-hmm. And they're generally decent. You know, most international teams you play are generally decent. They're the best of that country's lot that they've mustered together. And it's bloody hard. And, you know, there, I think there was a bit of naivety and, um, you know, as well as the, as well as the, you know, COVID and the squad situation and everything that went into his first time. I think he, he learned a lot of lessons in the first, um, you know, six months. And the fairness is, is, is putting them in. Just to note, by the way, um, so like, you know, I think Brian's attitude has always been to judge what he sees in front of him very sort of, um, very, very um, clearly and, with, and try to be without, without not getting into the sort of um, talk that Eamon Sweeney is about bigger issues. Just to note, by the way, he was there, Brian, last uh, Saturday as a guest of the FAI, the great uh, oh. detente is, uh has uh, has been completed, and uh, I think it was, he said it was the first time in 16 years being sort of within the uh, within the bosom of the FAI as part of the centenary um, thing. It was presented on the pitch with uh, a number of other uh, legends at halftime, but uh, he was very impressed with what he saw last Saturday um, in, in terms of the organisation of the team. He was really impressed um, the pressing uh, that they did and the way that they. I think you know to answer the question about. Robinson and Ogbeni, and can we rely on them to score goals? It looks like what the way they've come up with to answer the the lack of a Robbie Keane is by trying to commit more numbers into forward areas. And you can see certainly with the the second goals, with both goals actually, a lot of it was we had we had six or seven bodies around the box and mm-hmm. and kept the sustained pressure and and yielded goals. So so that's that that is positive. Yeah, that is positive. Yeah. Well, I think Kerr's early question marks over the approach have been completely vindicated by the subsequent 10, 12 games after Luxembourg, where things did become more pragmatic. It did mm-hmm. show that there was a naivety about the early approach. So yeah. I thought he and was even, spot on. Uh, even if you if you remember the early games, how Mick McCarthy was vilified for saying we need crosses into the box. And I was celebrating the Alan Brown goal as being a fantastic yeah. <laughs> goal, which came from a cross and a header. And on the crosses into the box <laughs> point, OK, we don't want them launched from halfway line diagonals. But look at Man City, look at Liverpool. Yeah, They're yeah. crossing machines. Yeah, That's, That's the, you know, the whole ethos. So uh, let's press on. And that's Stephen Kenny and uh, obviously uh, no uh, qualification at stake this year. Nations League come June. Uh, Matt Doherty, by the way, just to briefly mention that. So it's it's across the board here because he's been talking to various people in advance of the game. He's always pretty open, Matt Doherty, whenever he does media and uh, so approved in this instance. Reborn Doherty relishes Spurs role, for instance. This is uh, Paul Rowan's treatment of it. So he was just remembering uh, the Nadir, which was a year ago. And in effect, this was after Spurs had been dumped out of the Europa League. Jose Mourinho's not happy. And he makes a point by putting 16-year-old Alfie Devine on the bench ahead of him. And it was left to one of the coaches, Ledley King, to tell Doherty as he was about to get off the bus that he was being left behind in the car park until the game started because COVID regulations prevented him from entering the dressing room if he wasn't in the matchday squad. Doherty says, 
I was just uh, sat on my own on the bus. I was so close to just getting in the car because Ireland were meeting in Manchester. I didn't in the end. I decided I'd stay and watch the game and then go. I'm glad it's just not that professional, is it, to do that? No disrespect to kids. Doesn't say to the kid in question. Just no disrespect to kids generally here. But there were kids on the bench. Obviously, he was trying to prove a point to everybody, not just for me. And Mourinho was sacked uh, the following month. Uh, says of Conte, you know, that this guy is just meticulous. At home, you now don't dip into that sweet drawer. And I'm sure everybody has. You know you're getting weighed before a game. You know you've got some body fat testing coming up. So you want to be switched on. You don't want to give him any excuses. You want to be ready for him. Says he's learned loads uh, tactically. And it is great to have Matt Doherty reborn because I thought it was looking very ominous last year, I have to say. He was bereft of confidence and fitness and uh, was only moving one way. And that was further down the Premier League. His next move was going down. Mm. I mean, primary reason is, well, this is why Mourinho is um, flattering to deceive for about a decade. Like... There is a way to build up a player who has proven yeah. himself to be Premier League quality in Matt Doherty. And then there is a way to completely sever the relationship. Yeah. And I would say forcing a pro in his mid-twenties who's got an international break coming up to go on the drive all the way up to Birmingham and not tell him when you know you're going to do this, yeah, yeah. not tell him until he's about to get off the bus and then not even tell him yourself. Send Led- Led- Ledley King over to say, by the way, you have to stay in the bus for the next few hours as punishment for I'm not sure what, because he wasn't even playing in that Europa League game. I don't think. Um, and like, why week. would you do it? Like, it's, it seems, know. you know, it's just so callous because, he, you know, he, he put a teenager on the bench instead, uh, Divine, who is never going to use. No. No. So uh, all it's going to do, like it was going to do nothing for Divine, but it was going to really hurt Doherty. Like it was publicly humiliating him. And it was, you know, he must have known it would hurt his relationship between player and manager and maybe player and club and maybe uh, cause Doherty to question his future. So why on earth do you do it? And it's something we've seen with Mourinho on number number of occasions, you question the motivation because it's such a strange way to operate. Yeah, bizarre, Tommy, isn't it? Certainly. I mean, in contrast to his, his first few years, when you remember at, at Chelsea, you, you hear Damien Duff talk about like he still loves him, still loves you know, still love, still loves the gaffer, as he'd say, like you know, um, whenever he meets him, it's hugs and all this. And then you, you remember the Inter Milan farewell pictures i don't know if you remember when yeah, he was intern, crying and hugging in the car park you know it was like he had a real you know fraternal um big brother kind of um relationship with his players maybe because part partially maybe he was, he was a younger man and then as you say the last decades it's been this this sort of embittered uh point scoring cr- you know cruel sort of approach and i don't know whether it's a case of like have have the players changed in that time where maybe he was maybe he was doing this sort of thing when he was younger and players sort of were still had a little bit of that school of hard knocks ability to kind of like oh he's just doing that to to g me up i mean maybe that's what he was trying to do with doherty maybe you know i could i'll i'll put you down to your lowest low and see see if you can respond and and build yourself back up but it just doesn't seem to chime at all with anything that's you know that, that any of the top managers do. I mean, I, you know, you look you look at Pep Guardiola with players like Sterling and and Bernardo Silva, and you know, there's been players there who 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 kind of had you know have been left out of teams at times, and and it's been put up to them, and they've responded. So you just kind of wonder what behind the scenes is the is the dynamic there is a is a, is a, a different. I doubt there's any scenario where Guardiola would have humiliated these players like that and I think that's probably the the point where you're, you're never going to get a, a guy back after you do that to him right no I so wouldn't I think, think that's, so you know I mean it's, 
strange strange yeah to do it to a, a pro that age and sever all ties with them you would think so across the papers generally lots of match reports from the Premier League and the rugby yesterday and a few league final previews on the GA front and then of course there's lots of Masters coverage as you mm. might imagine this is the Sunday before the Thursday I think we all thought the standout piece was on page 20 of the Sunday Times and it was a really great insight to Seamus Power who we know but we don't know so well I've interviewed Seamus Power a few times and I got loads out of this it's by Dennis Walsh and he goes back and speaks to Fred Warren, who is of East Tennessee University. And Fred Warren is the man who spotted Seamus Power playing in a tournament in Port Marnock. He was on a recce to see if he could find some talent and saw Seamus Power. Nobody else was recruiting him. So maybe I saw something. I know I saw something. And he offered him a scholarship and got an angry phone call from Alice, who is Seamus Power's aunt. And she was on to him to say, what are you doing here disrupting our family situation? So at home, writes Dennis Waltz, the offer needed to be thrashed out. Power was just eight when his mother died, two years younger than his twin brothers. His father, Ned, had a small farm outside Dungarvan, but to make ends meet, he took a second job working night shifts as a welder. And Ned needed help with the kids and Alice took a hand in their upbringing. I hadn't realised any of that mm. uh, family story of the uh, Powers. It says Power was a brilliant student and Alice was worried that this meddling golf scholarship might torpedo his education. Warren listened carefully. Alice asked for a full syllabus to be sent out so she could look. And a few days um, on after, you know, a couple of months went by and uh, Warren had said he didn't want to get involved in the family situation. A few days later, Alice called again, asked Warren to send her every uh, course catalogue and syllabus he could find. Excuse me. The next call came a couple of weeks later. So. She requests the syllabus and then next call comes a couple of weeks later. And she said, according to Warren, I want you to know you have my blessing. You have a beautiful campus. I said, what do you mean? Have you been here? She said, yes, I have a niece in Charlotte, North Carolina. I flew over and I drove to see your university. So Alice was not messing around is uh, what's going on here. And what Fred Warren uh, remembers in 41 years running golf programs, none of Warren's students had ever chosen accounting, which is what Seamus Power had chosen. I had a lot of business majors, finance, management, but accounting's a lot harder. Standard in the school is very high. When Seamus told me he was going to major in accounting, I said, Seamus, that takes a lot of time. It's a really hard major. He said, I'll be fine. All of a sudden, he's pulling in straight A's, remembers Warren, in every semester. He graduated with honours. I liked everything about him. He had a bit of an independent streak, which I also admired, which is really fascinating insight into power. And then uh, Dennis just sums up, it's been a real slog for power over the last decade up and down, Corn Ferry Tour, very much on the bubble of the PGA Tour. And he hit a real low at the beginning of 2020. Off the tee, he was fighting a two-way miss. It was so destructive, he was outside the top 170 on tour for driving accuracy. And uh, his coach is Ken Guilford, who says he's worked really, really hard as well on his wedges. There would have been a time when he could be standing in the middle of a fairway with a wedge and put it 40 feet from the hole. That's not tour quality. But in the middle of 2020, he uh, decided to will get surgery and an elbow injury that was bothering him more than he realised. He got a new caddy, uh, Simon Keelan, who Power had known since they were both youth golfers in the Irish circuit. And they sorted out his driving. He did some wedge practice with Zach Johnson. And now, and then he started working with Bob Rattella, the psychologist, 18 months ago. And so he has jumped, in the last 12 months, Seamus Power has jumped 422 places in the world rankings. That is the biggest jump by anybody in the game. And so the point is, Kieran, this week as he goes to Augusta, he has earned it. Yeah, because that, that final um, paragraph, that jump, you know, when, when you see that written down in such stark terms, like this is what, you know, golf is one of the truly 
global sports. There aren't that many, really. And when you think about what was involved to make that kind of jump, that's up there with any achievement by uh, across the board in Irish sports, you know, and it comes under the radar because there isn't a major or there aren't, there aren't loads of titles. But to climb the rank is like that. Like what struck me reading this was how how many would have quit, I think, yeah. you know, or gone back and become, oh, I'll become a club pro or give lessons, master class and make a bit of money or go back home, have or a comfortable gone living. Gone into accounting, smart guy. Gone into accounting, yeah, and do a bit of golf and the lessons on the, on, the, on the side or whatever. Because he had, you know, when you go through his story, you know, lost his card, recovered it, lost it, recovered it, missing six cuts in his first season, 12 the year after, 14 the year after, changing the swing coach three times in 12 months, you know, to drop to 505th in the world. Like, it would have been so easy to quit. Yeah. He looked the equivalent when he first came on of a team that were definitely of championship quality and maybe even a touch too good for championship, but definitely not Premier League. Yeah, that was the reading. You're like, oh, he's always going to, he's always going to be in the bubble. This is going to be very stressful for him. He might eke out four or five years in a row of avoiding relegation, but yeah. it will always be a threat. And now he looks so comfortable out there. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And I just, um, there aren't many sports. I, I don't even know if there's any sport like that, uh, other than golf, that you could make that kind of change. That you're struggling so much. And you suddenly could make a massive leap forward on the on the on the global stage, yeah. like an athletic say, if you're struggling with injuries or something, you get back to your best. Like if you're fifteen hundred runner, you might improve by a couple of seconds or something. Like that might at the margins, you know, get same. into a final. Yeah. But like to get suddenly, this is a massive leap, you know. To, and obviously the mental side is so big, and that's the Bob Rotella influence has, has played a, mar- a large large part in it. Yeah, to Kieran's uh, point, then Tommy, if you're five hundred in the world, I think you'd be within your rights to say, God, I'm never going to be able to hang around the PGA Tour here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, I tell you what, he's a credit to his Auntie Alice anyway. Yeah. Um, she comes across God. very well as well, doesn't she? she? No messing. very well. Yeah, but my God, he, 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 he like I, you, you obviously would have known a lot more about him. I knew very little about him um, other than he'd gone over to America to college and stayed over there. And I think that sentence by his uh, Ken Warren, the, or for, sorry, Fred Warren from the Tennessee University, that he, you know, he had an independent streak and he had an inner confidence. Like we're talking with Matt Doherty being left on the bus, you know, as a, you know, bouncing back from a low point. Like this guy, he must he just have an incredible, like he must uh, he must just have a, a strength and a belief there that's that really does mark him out as special. You know, whatever the mechanics of the game that he he worked with and improved his driving and worked with Bob Rotella, but to actually have that belief to be to be thirty five. And still thinking, mm. and, and only now it's happened for him. Like that is, yeah. You know, he's he served his served his apprenticeship there. That's that's so it's it's so admirable. Well, I think tomorrow he'll enjoy his drive up Magnolia Lane. I mean, that's going to be an amazing Brilliant. moment for him. Yeah. yeah. So keep an eye out for him at Augusta. Uh, there's loads of the the usual preview pieces. A couple looking back to Woods, 25 years on from his win in '97. Uh, David Walsh, Kieran is noting the absence of. Phil Mickelson. I mean, if uh, what a month ago you told people that Phil Mickelson wouldn't be at the Masters and Tiger Woods would, <laughs> you'd have had healthy odds. I can tell you that. Yeah. So uh, in the space of what sixty days, the last sixty days, he's he's lost all his sponsors. He's blown up his reputation. Uh, David Walsh touches on, uh, in effect, his leveraging the PGA Tour and and working with the Saudis, even though, as he said, in what he thought were off the record comments that. He, I know they execute people over there for being gay. I know they killed a journalist. I know they're scary mother effers. But this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. 
uh, he said to leverage the tour. And by the way, this is a tour which has made him about $800 million. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a... Uh uh, you know, it's an interesting piece because a, 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 a more kind of what it hints at, and it hints, you know, because Phil Mickelson is somebody who's made a huge amount of money out of golf, and he's made a lot of money out of the Saudi Association. But um, you know, there are, uh, you know, he has had gambling issues. I think that's been yeah. that's been documented, and you know, um, David Walsh goes through some of the figures. Uh, goes through some of his investments that uh, worked out very badly for him. Um, one which worked out very well because the FAI investigated it and he was forced to pay everything back and then some. And yeah. uh, Billy Walters was involved, who did go That's to right. jail yeah, yeah. for insider trading. So, uh, But we're talking like he charts um, gambling losses in the millions here because people have wondered what is Phil's motivation of late all this, you know, this hunt for money. And, you know, other pieces have documented how he sold his private jet a couple of years ago. And uh, there's a, he, he's behaving like a man in need of a payday. Yeah. But it's backfired. And, and often you don't know that with uh, professional sport because I've seen different examples like you wouldn't name them for obvious reasons but uh, you know there's people you know you see taking gigs and you wonder why they're doing like it could be a punditry gig it could be something in, in management or coaching you think like, well, do they really need to do that given all the variance in the career but then they, either through gambling or bad investments or a mixture of both they've ended up uh, you know basically on their uppers like you just make the assumption uh, you know that the money's always going to be there, and there's actually a lot of research into into um, retired footballers in England, and the amount that are bankrupt at forty is, st- is staggering. You know, like yeah. it's, it's really common. Well, no, Phil Mickelson, uh, he hasn't been officially suspended, but the mm. sense is he absolutely has, and equally the sense is the powers that be at Augusta have politely let him know it might be best if he took a break this year. So we'll see where Mickelson emerges again it could well be on this Saudi tour that Greg Norman has launched uh, first event in June would not be shocked if that's where he pops up uh, you mentioned McDawson Tommy so when other uh, sporting administrators and CEOs were hogging the limelight for much of the last 20 years McDawson was quietly building a revolution at Leinster he's, uh, he's signing off he's, he's speaking to a couple of journalists anything grab you in it? Yeah loads grab me in this actually um, I, I like I obviously full of ad- admiration for the job that's been done at Leicester you know I think he obviously has done um, a, a, a grouped interview with a few journalists because Peter O'Reilly has it and Brendan Fanning uh, Peter O'Reilly Sunday Times Brendan Fanning has it in the um, in the Sindo as well and, and uh, elsewhere in the mail too so um, and, and with the same quotes but you know the, the the situation when he came in at Leinster he'd never managed anybody before uh, he was a stockbroker in, in Davies um uh, stockbrokers and, and apply for the job seemingly just for a bit of a change and you know learn the ropes as, as he went along but Leinster um, now has a staff of over over 200 top quality facilities and an annual turnover of around uh, 19 million let me just find because I think um, let me just find what Brendan Fanning folks the, the, what they started off uh, when he first came into it um, it was you know tur- they maybe had a turnover of the 30 players and the turnover was 1.5 million that 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 was it, and they were up, you know they were operating in Donnybrook, which was also the home of two separate rugby clubs, and you know people were given out when he wanted to go to Lansdowne Road for Heineken Cup semi-finals, and um, you know they were saying, oh, we'll have it, at, you know, keep the matches in Donnybrook, but it was he obviously had the vision to say, look, we need to go bigger, we need to go better, we need to make it a big event. What does come through to me though in these pieces uh, with McDawson is 
the sheer the the financial clout that the sort of Leinster rugby world can call on, mm. and it's no you know look no harm to this guy, you know he's obviously well connected. You know I think um, Peter Ray talks about his an impeccable contacts book of of wealthy. Uh, uh, individuals that he was able to you know, uh, con- uh, call on David Shubotham, a friend and former stockbroker, put 2.2 million towards the building of Leinster's training and admin base in UCD. Close pals like Paul Coulson and the Wall Brothers, Niall and David, funded the building of the Ken Wall Centre of Excellence in Donnybrook. And I, I just think, like, I don't begrudge you know Leinster Rugby any any anything about how they they do their business. And they they also talk about the relationship with the schools. And the invaluable job that's you know how he had to manage that relationship because at first schools like Black Rock pulled players from a Leinster match because uh, they had they had a big game coming up and they had to manage that relationship so that that it worked. But now you look at St Michael's it has been a phenomenon. Now he does he does say that we don't want kids all coming from the same background and we've divided the province into five regions and have centres of excellence etc. So they are conscious of, of broadening out that um, that sort of um, talent talent base, but. There, it just does. It does tell you. I'm, I'm just thinking about. Say, we were talking about League of Ireland and lack of investment. You know, what could Irish soccer do with that sort of um, that sort of inv- tap of investment from corporate Ireland that is seems to be so accessible uh, for Irish rugby, certainly for the Leinster side of things. You know, and it does. It does all feel a little bit like. I, I mean, like, you know, he comes across really well. He comes across like really amiable good calm-headed guy through you know t- good stories about dealing with michael checker and joe schmidt putting the stars on the badge and jo- no, which joe schmidt hated but he stuck to his guns <laughs> but you know just the end of brendan fanning's version of of it it says dawson's dance card is not too busy he's the director of a company that produces rugby headgear has a year ahead filled with pints and speeches as incoming president of lansdowne which his father and grandfather before him were um Neither sounds too taxing. Not really, but I'm available for action. Any soft directorships where you don't have to do a lot of work, he smiles. Ha, 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 ha. And it's all very, uh, you know. Well, aren't, aren't we all, Tommy? Aren't we aren't all? Aren't we all? Oh, exactly. 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 Well, can I apply for these jobs? Um, you know what? Don't, yeah, listen. He's done a great job. They've, they've become a fanta- fantastic, you know, franchise and very commas with an Irish sport. But the, 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 the sort of um, milieu for them is is one that not many other parts of Irish sport are you know can can sort of even dream of yeah. and they made the most of it fair yeah no that, you know, it's, uh, that's very fair and, and on the money I think yeah well on the money literally <laughs> but it's uh, it's the case across you know you see the GA as well like Limerick's rise is, is due to many factors but a significant one is the the funding coming from JP McManus without a doubt you know the funding that was put into the academy in particular like Tommy remember Jim McGuinness and Donegal like Jim McGuinness basically drew up a list of the wealthiest people he knew of from Donegal like a lot of them lived in, in UK or America and he literally knocked on their door and looked for money for it because you need money to be competitive and it might be an issue with Irish soccer because you know people don't like talking about class but generally it's been a working class sport you know similar to boxing which often struggles to get funding as well like there's a famous line by Billy Martin who Martin Stadium and Santry is named after and he said the problem with the FAI is there's too many bicycles outside Merrion Square meaning their old headquarters there was, a, there was a huge amount of snobbery in that statement but it basically they didn't have the business connections like it's harder for somebody 
uh, you know, in Finn Harps to get money than somebody from Donegal GA to get money. You know, the, 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 some sports are better connected in the business world. Mm. As a final point, Allianz Football League finals this afternoon. Yeah, ju- ju- grab you? Ju- ju- well, one the, the the general point to make is that nothing grabbed me. All right, okay. Because it, it, it really struck me, uh, like I uh, of the better pieces, Killian O'Connor uh, piece on his influence by Michael Foley in the Sunday Times. But what struck me generally as a general overview, and this applies across the board, you know, in the daily papers, across radio programs, across online, the coverage has been quite tired. Like we talk so much about how the league is the best competition, this football league has been great, and the last weekend was so dramatic. But the final is so low-key, you know, then and people are struggling for angles. And there's various reasons, like there's a lack of access because of the GPA strike, though there wasn't a huge amount of access anyway. The ma- both managers have been around the block, people are struggling to say anything new about them, or both counties. So I think... Uh, it is remarkable that in theory is one of the biggest games of the year but you're looking through the coverage and, and you're going this a lot of it is kind of meh well it tends to wind down a touch the league yeah, as opposed absolutely. to build to a crescendo doesn't it I yeah. did re- do you know actually honourable man I thought Dermot Crow on uh, Paddy Talley's influence at Kerry was pretty good because he gets quotes is Stephen uh, Stack the former player yeah and he and says Darryl Kinnage as well yeah, yeah he talked to some good people so Ste- yeah, Stephen yeah. Stack says at Kerry's efforts in defence before this year I felt there wasn't a humility with all the players on the pitch when we lost the ball I'll put it that way which is a, a great way of saying it. And Daryl Kaneja tells a story of bumping into Jack O'Connor when word came out that he was bringing in Paddy Talley of Tyrone. Can you imagine? And Daryl remember saying to him, you're going to get a bit of stick about Paddy Talley, probably. Uh, Jack did not give a flying F. Were there reservations, he asked. I said, ah, just you'd be back in West Kerry and you'd hear someone saying, what are they bringing him down for? And the response was, the only question I need to ask is, is he good at his job? And well, but even know, on that, that, even on that, that's very familiar from Jack O'Connor because Jack O'Connor, when he first became manager, like it's all in his book, Keys to the Kingdom. You know, he said he scoured the Ulster Council coaching manuals for because he wanted to find out how the Ulster teams were so good defensively. He met with Dominic Corrigan uh, to get tips on uh, how to adopt a more northern style. He effectively recruited Paul Galvin because he wanted a Brian Doher type player in his team. So he's uh, like the Paddy Talley thing is nothing new with yeah. Jack O'Connor. 20 years ago, he was, he was thinking the same way. Yeah, interesting. Maybe that's why it's tired to you. You've seen it all before. <laughs> Just too old. <laughs> too old this. I think a young guy like Tommy. Martin. Yeah, Tommy, were you, were you blown away by the GA coverage? Anything grab you? Uh, a lot older now than I was an hour ago. <laughs> um, I actually, yeah, the Durban Crow piece I thought was really interesting as well. Um, for that reason that I, can't, I still can't believe in 2022 that Kerry forwards are sniffy about putting in a, a couple of tackles. Like, I, find, I just thought that was remarkable, really. Like, I just thought it was a given. And maybe, so maybe they'd, they'd argue with that, but it seems to be certainly something they perceived in the county and that Jack O'Connor, obviously, item number one on his agenda, let's get get Paddy Talley and, like, the man who's, like, Mr. Mr. <laughs> Mr. You know, Black Death kind of, uh, of you know, uh, defensive uh, coordinator. Um, but it's funny. I just thought it was remarkable because it's kind of, in modern football, it's sort of, it's it's the basic i was doing a thing with mickey whelan and pat gilroy involved and with vincent's there last week and just about how first thing they had to do was like try and get these wonderfully talented forwards to put in a bit of a shift with to to get tackling and like mickey whelan's genius was with with, with the games-based training and he come up with uh he come up with this thing where 
everybody had to take two solos before they uh, released the ball and it encouraged the forwards to think, well, I might actually get it because he has to take a solo. So it just set a little spark into their minds to, you know, to start to be more inclined to tackle and, right. you know, I mean, sure, look, plenty other reasons as well, but just that that was such a focus of them back in what, 08, 09, 10, 10 and eventually 11, you know, paying fruit and, and for a decade then uh, resulted. I just couldn't believe this. That that's still a thing in Kerry that they would feel that we, we can just get by on our talent, which is if that's the case. It's well, we'll see if it turns around this year. Yeah, we sure will, fellas. We're out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, much appreciated, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks. And Tommy Martin from Virgin Media Television. Cheers, Tommy. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Kieran. Bye bye.